Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hello, Chris. Good morning. Um, listeners, welcome to the latest edition of The Other Hand. Uh, perhaps the last one before the end of the year. Who knows? Something might happen next week that will um, elicit a response from Chris and myself. But presumably this will be the closing one for 2023. Um, I hope um, all of our listeners enjoyed and weren't too annoyed by the material we've published uh, and recorded all year. Uh, we certainly enjoyed it. And I think the reason why we started this back in February 2021, Chris, was um, for a bit of enjoyment. And we've certainly enjoyed it. And we hope the listeners have. And uh, a lot of the feedback we get certainly would suggest that it's going down well. So let's hope that continues into 2024. Um in our last podcast, we looked at the world of politics and a year of elections in 2024. Um, we're now going to just turn around and talk a little bit about the economic outlook in 2024, interest rates, inflation. And actually, I think this podcast will be pretty free flowing in the sense that um, we'll take it in whatever direction it goes. But before I start, um, I want to address the elephant in the room before you do, Chris. Um, the, the office... That would be me, would it, Jim? The, <laughs> elephant in the, Chris, the Office for National Statistics in the UK, uh, this Friday morning, revised Q3 growth from flat originally to minus 0.1. And the second quarter, which is reported as up 0.2, originally has been revised down to flat. So the UK economy is on the brink of technical recession. And I know, Chris, this is totally consistent with um, everything you've been saying about the UK. But before you come in and say, I told you so, Jim, um, I would also point out that we got November retail sales out of the UK this morning, up 1.3%. 
um, month on month, which was much stronger than expected. But 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 anyway, Chris, um, we, we can joke about our uh, views on the UK economy. But actually, if you look back at the year just past, um, it's been an extraordinary one. You know, interest rates continue to rise up until the up until the third quarter. Uh, we had the ongoing war in Ukraine. We had, um, you know, the Israel-Hamas situation since the 7th of October. We, we've had massive volatility on bond markets, particularly um, at one stage in late September, October, uh, the 10-year bond yield in the States briefly went through the, um, the 5% mark. This morning, it's trading down at 3.86%, but there's been incredible volatility. Likewise, on commodity prices, every time we come out and say something uh, about oil prices within a week, we're proven wrong again. But um, oil prices, Brent crude was down at $71 a barrel a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's up at about 81 this morning. Uh, the developments in the Red Sea, the Houthi rebels attacking ships and so on. Um, is having a marked impact there. But it's it's been a year of incredible volatility, um, incredible uncertainty. And um, against that sort of backdrop, uh, I look back and think, well, actually, the global economic outturn um, in Europe, in the United Kingdom, particularly in the United States, actually didn't turn out too bad. Certainly relative to a lot of people's expectations. When we did this podcast this time last year, which incidentally, Jim, was one of our most listened to podcasts ever, it, it, it's always striking just how at this time of year people really do try to think very hard about the outlook. It's, it, it's a bit weird if you think about it because we should always do it. We shouldn't just do it at the turn of the year, but it's the human thing to do, I guess. And... I've been looking this morning at the output of the world's investment banks and other financial institutions, and I'm struck by the fact that if you are a bank, if you are a financial institution, you produce a 200-page coffee table book on the outlook for the next 12 months. And it's what they all do, and I presume they do it for a very good reason, and they're all very popular. But what they were all saying this time last year was that they were very worried about economic growth, and almost without exception. Uh, if you look back at the outturn compared to what everybody was saying last year, the consensus, if you like, is that growth did hold up better than expected, even in the UK. Because hands up, I thought the UK was going to go into a proper recession in 2023. It's essentially been flat. Let's face it, those numbers that you quoted there, zero or minus 0.1, statistically or meaningfully, there isn't a difference between those two numbers. And you emphasize the fact that it might be a technical recession. There's no agreed definition amongst economists about what a recession is and what it is. This convention of two consecutive quarters of negative growth is just that. It's a convention. We all know what a recession feels like, Jim. I mean, you have to have soaring unemployment, uh, all sorts of issues. Two consecutive quarters of minus 0.1% growth. That's not a recession, really, is it? By what? By what? most people would think we mean by a recession. So we need to be careful about the language that we're using. A small technical point, or another one at least, about the UK is that, as I have been saying for some time now, I did change my tune eventually this year, and I became less gloomy, hands up. Really? I, thought, I hadn't noticed. Uh, Jim, in my defence, Your Honour, 
um, I am not guilty as charged because I was this time last year very gloomy. Yep, absolutely agreed. And then as the data came in for the year, I realized that what the UK was doing was essentially bouncing around a zero flat growth rate and that it was going to be plus 0.1 here and minus 0.1 there. And I think for the last couple of quarters, that's exactly what's happened. So I'm a a flat earth or a flat economy merchant when it comes to the UK. But the technical point that, that has been made this morning, I've seen one or two people saying this, is that if you... And this is in the spirit of everything being connected to everything else. The other hand's catchphrase. Um, One of the big surprises this year has been the immigration numbers. How many people are still coming into the UK net-net? And what that means is there must have been quite a big population increase over the last year or two, much bigger than people generally thought. So if you do the GDP, the economy thing properly on a per capita basis, it doesn't look nearly so good as merely saying it's flat. Um, it, it, they do become reasonably chunky negative growth rates on a per capita basis once you factor in the increases in the capita. And so th- that, that I think, is, is a concern and a point well, well made by, by others this morning in the wake of the, the, this latest data release. But going back to what people were saying about the world, not just the UK, this time last year and this, um, I think the outcome for 2023 was generally better than expected uh that the 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 one place that everybody thought as well as the uk would have a recession this year was bizarrely the states if you remember and that's the trap that you and i didn't fall into um we always thought that uh, betting against the u.s economy is generally not a good thing or sensible thing to do it's such a resilient beast and so it has proved the most recent GDP figures for the state show in the third quarter it was growing, unlike the UK, uh, at a plus 5% plus growth rate. That's unsustainable. It won't grow that much again, I don't think. Um, but again, never say never. Uh, so the US has been the big surprise on the upside. And the big surprise on the downside has been inflation. I think most people thought it would fall, but I don't think anybody thought it would fall by as much as it has. And the absolute astonishing thing that has taken everybody by surprise, nobody forecast this, was the fall in bond yields, the fall in long-term interest rates, the the, um, extent to which interest rates are now expected to fall in 2024, the associated rise in equity markets. I think the S&P 500, the US stock market, is up 25% this year. Did anybody forecast that? Um, I don't think so. And of course, that's very concentrated amongst the the Super 7 or whatever it's called, the Invincible 7 um, or, or, of those famous names, Microsoft, uh, Apple and all the rest of it. Uh, so it, it, it's been a surprising year. And uh, I'll, I'll hand over back to you in a second to t- for you to sort of perhaps take us through what a, your sense of the consensus is, without being too precise about it, as I said, trying to distill a consensus from at least 50 different 200-page tomes is, is quite tricky. And um, what, oh, and I, I'm really interested, Jim, in what you think about, about the outlook for next year, about the globe, but of course, for the Irish economy in, in particular. Um, I'll start and finish my outlook piece by, by my specialty, if you like, which is the UK economy. I think 2024 won't be that different to 2023. I think it will be bouncing around a flattish growth rate. Um, for choice, I'd say that they, we we will avoid rec- a, a bad recession in 2024. We might get a technical one, but that will be neither here nor there. The most interesting event this year will be when the Bank of England starts to cut interest rates and when Rishi Sunak calls the general election. 
Yeah, a lot in there, Chris. And, um, you know, I, I think what, what all of this analysis, uncertainty, getting forecasts wrong, etc., proves is still there is a huge lack of understanding about what drives inflation, about what really drives economic activity. And in that regard, I think it's worth mentioning that yesterday, uh, Robert Solo, at the age of 99, died he won the Nobel Prize in 1987, I think it was, for explaining the impact of technology on economic growth. And I guess Solo's growth model has been um, pretty instrumental in many economics textbooks and courses over the years. Uh, but, you know, back in 1987, do we understand any more now than we did then about what drives economic activity? I'm, I don't I don't think we do, actually. And, and I think the year just passed certainly proves that. Let me interrupt um, you there. I, I want to talk about, can I just briefly, you just triggered something there about two other Nobel Prize winners in economics. There's a guy called Robert Lucas, who also died this year. Yes. Lucas Nobel Prize be. winner. Yeah. And he is famous for lots of things. Absolutely brilliant chap. Extraordinary story about how personal reinvention is possible. His first degree was in history and um, sat down after he did his first degree and read Paul Samuels, Paul Samuelson, another Nobel Prize winner, an MIT economist, wrote a book that he began in the 1930s and finished in 1947 called Foundations of Economic Analysis, which is of its time, it doesn't look like it now, of its time was really, really mathematical. And, and Lucas taught himself economics from this one book, which essentially was Samuelson's PhD thesis, and, and then Lucas went on to absolutely transform, turn macroeconomics inside out and really uh, skewer Keynes or crude Keynesianism in all sorts of different ways. Anyway, I'm, I'm prattling on about Lucas, who I find a really interesting man. He died this year, but he once said that after all this work that he did, he did work in statistics, econometrics, mathematical economics, turning Keynesian economics upside down. He said, once you start thinking about economic growth, this is my point. You can't stop thinking about it because it is so interesting, so fascinating and so puzzling. And uh, we don't understand very much about it. The second Nobel Prize winner that I'll mention is a guy called Angus Dayton, who's originally Scottish, I think, uh, certainly yeah. British, and now a settled American citizen since the 1980s. And he also is a Nobel Prize winner. And he coined the term deaths of despair, which many people will have heard of because he's done an awful lot of work, empirical work, on just why so many Americans are dying, particularly of drug overdoses. And he wrote a great book called Economics in America, which has really upset the profession, published this year. And in the early pages, gives you a flavor of what the book is like. I love it already. I haven't finished it. But he talks about a subject that you and I've talked about a lot, which is minimum wages. Now, as you know, Jim, we are trained economists. And so, so what's our reaction when we say that it, what will happen if you put minimum wages up? Uh, the, 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 the obvious answer to that is that it costs employment. Yeah. yeah. And he brings his page by pointing out that there was this famous study a long time ago by um, uh, a couple of his colleagues, one of whom also went on to win the Nobel Prize, showing that in a particular set of circumstances, the ri a rise in the minimum wage for a couple of pizza joints, actually, didn't produce the predicted effect on um, on employment. And it's a, it really offended the profession because it violates all 
laws of supply and demand, every bit of theory that we're taught, every textbook that we're referred to. But it shows you that when you have a particular set of circumstances, water can be forced to flow uphill. Your intuition can be offended. And it isn't always the case that rises in the minimum wage will cause unemployment. It might do. It probably will do. But in certain circumstances, and in more circumstances than you realize, it hasn't done historically when you look at the data. The general point about that, those two stories about growth, Lucas and all the rest of it, and that Angus Dayton story is that growth is something that we really haven't figured out yet. And some of the things that we figured out are wrong in that the minimum wage thing in certain circumstances is wrong. And the underlying point that emerges from all that work is that the search that economists have had, a bit like the physicists, for a theory of everything, that, that this is what always works, always applies in all circumstances, doesn't exist that it always all depends. So when you ask the question, what does a rise in the minimum wage do, or a rise in interest rates, or a rise in government spending, or a change in any external variable, a fall in bond yields, a rise in the stock market, what will be the other effects on the economy? It'll always depend upon the starting point that you're at and a lot of other conditions. So the answer will always be it all depends and we're not entirely sure. We don't really know for sure. So that's important when you're thinking about all of these different outlooks, when you're actually thinking about the context in which we're talking about economic growth next year, it comes heavily caveat. We don't know nothing. Sorry to abuse the language. We do know something. I mean, it's wrong to say that economists don't know anything. That's absolutely rubbish. But it's always important for us to be intellectually honest. And I think one of the things that we do on this podcast, Jim, is emphasize the fact that the things that we don't know, and we do try very, very hard, unlike some others, not everybody, to be intellectually honest. We're not actually trying to sell anybody anything. Sorry, that was that was a bit of a digression. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I guess looking ahead to 2024. You said, you said it was going to be free-flowing. So yeah, I it is free-flowing, I, absolutely. I, I, I flowed freely. No, great, great, <laughs> absolutely great. Um, we, we end the year with inflation in the States at 3.1%, 3.9% in the UK, 24 in the euro area, 3.9% in Ireland, well, not quite the end of the year. These are November figures, but certainly those inflation readings are significantly lower than would have been predicted. And one of the, I guess, biggest surprises of all in the past year for me was that 
central bankers have managed to get inflation down. And maybe it's not just central bankers. There's obviously other factors at play. But inflation rates have been brought down close enough to target further to go. But at the same time, labor markets have remained remarkably resilient. And if you think back to, I guess, when you did economics and when I did economics, the Phillips curve analysis was pretty much de rigueur at the time. And it basically looked at the trade-off and the relationship between inflation and unemployment. And the conclusion from that was that uh, you couldn't get inflation down without forcing unemployment up. That's pretty much it, I think, if my yeah, yeah, yeah. correctly. And, and, um, and the, Phillips cur- the Phillips curve is still there, either explicitly or implicitly, in all of these central bank models, mate, I'll tell you. It, yeah, it is indeed, absolutely. And um hasn't happened. I mean, US unemployment at 3.7%, 4.2% in the UK, 65 in the euro area, 4.8% in Ireland. So that's been the strange combination in 2023. Looking forward to 2024, um, we mentioned uh, a lot about politics in the last podcast will obviously have a huge impact on the economic environment. But um, looking at economics per se, I suppose uh, at the beginning of this year, the big question was uh, how high would interest rates have to go to get inflation down and how much damage it would do to labor markets and to economic growth. Um, going into 2024, um, the narrative has changed somewhat. Uh, the question now is, number one, when do central bankers start to cut interest rates? And secondly, um, how, excuse me, how are the real effects of interest rate increases we've seen in the last couple of years going to eventually uh, feed through the economy? And I suppose there is a view that we haven't yet felt the full effects of those interest rate increases because there is a lag and that some analysts are suggesting that actually 2024 will be a more difficult year for the world economy because of the of the lagged effect of those cumulative rate increases. Um, I think like yourself, I'd be a bit more upbeat about 2024. Um, I think it will be a lot like 2023 uh, because if we see marked economic weakness come true, I think that will certainly force the hand of central bankers. I also think that one thing we've seen at government level since the beginning of COVID really has been a much more interventionist approach on the fiscal side. So, you know, you would expect to see some uh, further fiscal loosening, excuse me, in the States, the United Kingdom. Uh, You'd never be convinced about Europe because it's a slightly different model. But um, I, I think net net, I think 2024 actually will be an okay year. Um, I do fully recognize all of the headwinds, particularly the political ones that could have huge economic ramifications. But um, I am pretty upbeat about 2024 in a relative sense. Um, It's not going to be a booming global economy. I I think technically that would be impossible to achieve, but uh, it should be okay. Yeah, and I think it... Given all our comments, all the ones I made earlier on about the mysteries and uh, intricacies of what actually determines economic growth, while people, why people like Robert Lucas said that once you start thinking about growth, you can't actually think about anything else. That's the sort of thing a geeky economist would say, of course. I'm sure that uh, more sensible human beings think about lots of things other than economic growth. 
But growth next year will be as a function of many things. It'll be short-term drivers like the oil price. Is there another big war? Does Do interest rates come down? All of those things will feed into growth next year. But growth next year is also a function of many things that have taken place over many years, mostly economic policy decisions. Uh, one of the reasons why the Irish economy has had a boom in recent years is because of the accumulation of decisions taken all the way back, really, to the 1950s. And you can have that kind of historical, economic historical discussion about how the Irish economy today was shaped by T.K. Whitaker. These sorts of things are incredibly important. And I was thinking about this when I looked at the Scottish budget that was announced this week. And I don't know whether you know this, Jim, but as, as part of the devolution settlement in the UK, both Scotland and Wales have the powers to vary income tax rates. Wales hasn't done this. Wales has the same income tax rates as England. But Scotland for a while now has had higher income tax rates than does England. And because for all sorts of reasons, economic growth hasn't happened in Scotland in the way that it could and should have, the fiscal situation is in trouble and they uh, need to rectify that. And so in time-honoured, cack-handed, economic policy, wrong way, um, they instead of tackling the reasons why they've got a budget shortfall, they're putting taxes up again. So Scotland's going to have significantly higher taxes than England. Well done, the SNP and Scotland. It's a particular example of a general phenomena that also affects Wales. In the last couple of weeks, Wales has lost its first minister, its prime minister, if you like. And the journalism, I was reading an article in The Guardian today. I must give up reading The Guardian. It is such a bad newspaper, particularly when it comes to the subject area that we know, Jim, finance and economics. And there was they, they, they laud uh, this, this Mark Drakeford chap who's just resigned as, as first minister in Wales as being a radical Corbynite Labour man. And he is a Corbynista. There's a clue as to what he's actually done to the Welsh economy. And similar to the Scottish economy, um, the Welsh economy has been run into the ground. And the UK is not a great economic story generally. You've heard me go on about that for years now. Wales and Scotland are worse than the UK average. And the devolved powers that these administrations have for education and health in particular, and in the case of Scotland, it's fiscal policy, it's taxation policies, uh, they're doing it all wrong. The recent PISA education results for Scotland and Wales were dreadful after a run of dreadful numbers. Wales and Scotland used to be places that venerated education, that really valued the education as, as something for, for our children. That's gone. The NHS is bad in the UK. It's fallen over in the UK. It's on its back in Scotland and Wales. It's worse than in England. It's, I know it's also bad in Northern Ireland. Why has growth disappeared from Scotland and Wales in a much worse fashion than England? Lots of reasons. They don't have London. I'll accept that. That's, that's just economic geography, economic reality. But they also have done everything that they possibly can to deprioritize the economy. It's the national question in both countries in different guises. In Scotland, it's just independence. That's what the SNP exists to do. And therefore, they neglect everything else, including the economy, including education, including the health service. In Wales, it's hard to know what they're, they've been up to for the 25 years of independence. Uh, but look at what they have done rather than what they say. Drakeford, in his interview with The Guardian today, claimed to have been radical and cited the 
20 mile an hour speed limit that he's put on Wales and the fact that they don't build any roads anymore as his two most radical and achievements of which he is proud. Um, nothing, no mention was made of the education system, the healthcare system, both of which have fallen over in Wales. Uh, what, what, and I think it's what happens when you take economic growth for granted. And this is the risk that I think you're going to run in Ireland when you elect Sinn Féin, is that you've had successive administrations in Ireland prioritise economic growth. When you decide to go for other things, in Wales, for example, those other things, as I say, have been the Welsh language, 20 mile an hour speed limits and not building roads. And um, When you have those kinds of weird priorities, then uh, I think you... you of necessity, because of the scarcity of political capital, the scarcity of, of time, of energy, you deprioritize the economy. The economy will then, you risk it uh, going backwards in the way that it has in Scotland and Wales. You, you, you must, the economy and growth, I think it's a bit like peace. If you don't take care of it, you might be scared and frightened by, by actually what happens next. You can't subjected to benign neglect. So um, we do have a problem with regional economic growth in the UK, particularly in Wales and Scotland. And I think it's a real shame that there isn't more analysis done of why that is the case. I've told you why I think it's the case. And I also issue a warning, Jim, that I do think that you're going to do similar things to Wales and Scotland for similar reasons. Pursuing the national question, of course, is, is right there front and centre. And I look with wry amusement at Mary Lou Macdonald's assertion that healthcare should be free at the point of delivery. That suggests to me that she thinks that the Northern Irish NHS is going to be transplanted into the Republic um, after unification. And oh, if that is the right. case, Jim, I, I wish you luck with that. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a frightening prospect. Uh, Chris, lo lo looking at the Irish economy in 2024, um, you know, in many ways, we are coming into the year in pretty rude health here in a sense that we have a 4.8% unemployment rate. We have 2.563 million people in employment at the end of September, which was the largest ever. Uh, the public finances recovered strongly in November because of a much stronger than anticipated corporation tax take. Uh, I certainly get the impression out there that anecdotally and talking to retailers and so on, that actually... Uh, consumer spending is pretty strong out there over the Christmas period. So there's a lot of positive momentum coming in. Um, in 2024, I think the things we will be looking out for will really revolve around the, at one level, the performance of the multinational sector, because one of the features of the last 12 months certainly was a significant decline in the multinational export performance. And we've spoken about that on numerous podcasts about what's happening on the chemical and pharma export side, the electrical machinery, and in other words, the IT export side. You know, there's definitely an adjustment happening there post-COVID, but there's also a reflection on the slower global um, trade situation. So th those factors will be watched very closely in Ireland in 2024. And um, there's two areas where there will be of particular interest. One is obviously employment in the multinational sector. And secondly, and I think more importantly, will be the ongoing impact on the public finances. And while the early months of the year are not, don't tell us anything really about the corporation tax situation, 
Um, I think as the year progresses, we'll be watching that very, very closely. So there's uncertainty on the multinational side. There's no doubt about that. Uh, in terms of the indigenous economy, um, interesting, you spoke about the impact of minimum wage. I remember um, back in the day, it was in the 1990s, I forget exactly when the minimum wage was introduced in this country. I prepared and presented a paper at the Dublin Economics Workshop in Ken Mayer um, about the about minimum wage, basically. And I drew from a lot of the international literature on minimum wage at that stage. And um, the overall conclusion was that, you know, it wouldn't be good for employment. Um, and looking back on it now, um, I was wrong, I guess. Um, and the real situation, as you described, is much more nuanced. Uh, but the point I'm really getting to here is that on January 1st, the minimum wage here goes up by 12%, okay? And I have been talking to a number of small business owners, particularly in retail and hospitality, and they have they have shown me the figures on what exactly this will cost them, okay? And there's also the issue of relativity because if those on the minimum wage get a 12% increase, uh, that does feed up through the employment chain. Okay, it's, it's this concept of relativity. So they, many businesses see a significant increase in wage costs in 2024. And um, in an environment where, you know, margins are under pressure because of high energy costs, because of high insurance costs, because all of the other costs of doing business, um, many of those businesses are worried and also in April, the debt warehousing scheme that the Revenue Commissioners introduced during COVID, uh, that debt starts to be paid back by those businesses. So there's, there's a lot of actually headwinds for the SME sector in this economy in 2024. So I think it'll be another interesting um, year, but I think it's going to be a bit challenging for many small businesses. That's a great shame because... We are in this podcast trying to think about bigger picture issues in this free-flowing way. And one of the things that we talked about this year in the context of Budget 2024 was the threat uh, long discussed to corporation taxes and the extent to which any or all of them are windfall taxes and the way in which that big boom looks to be over. It, it hasn't collapsed. There are a few signs for a few months that revenues were falling, but then we got another bumper month. So there are still lots of questions about corporation taxes. And if you do think that they are a threat, Jim, as we said, I think, several times during during the year, you can not do you can't do very much about the international sector. You continue to try to attract them, but a lot of the factors that drive our receipts of corporation taxes are out of our hands. They're set by international rules. And the international rules are kind of sort of moving against us. So what should you do to counter that threat? You should then look elsewhere to your economy to rebalance it. And the obvious thing to do in the context of the Irish economy is to rebalance it away from the international sector, still nurture that, still take care of it, still the idea do what it does best and get keep that sector there and keep it coming. But grow the SME sector, grow the domestic sector of the economy, nurture it, grow it, mentor it. And it strikes me that from what you've just said there and all the other things that we know and love about the SME sector, that frankly, all that the in the government, if you like, the authorities do for the SME sector is produce headwinds for it. Would that be a, a gross um, 
mis- mischaracterization of what's no, going on? No, it wouldn't actually. Government intervention towards the SME sector, you know, hasn't been great um, in, in many respects. And it is definitely um, created a more challenging operating environment. And every piece of legislation that's being introduced, um, there's new um, reporting requirements in relation to expenses, for example, coming in, which will impose a significant regulatory burden on small businesses again. So, yeah, I, I, I think government pays a lot of lip service to um, promoting the SME sector and the importance of the SME sector, but um, doesn't really deliver in terms of positive um, impact there. So it's 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 an issue, and I, I think it's, it's, it's one what will be really interesting in the first quarter of the year uh, because the first quarter of the year for small businesses, particularly in retail and hospitality, is always challenging. And the hope every year is that in the November, December period, you build up enough fat to get you through those lean months. Um, I would be kind of worried about the number of restaurants we might just see going out of business um, in the early months of the new year. I hope I'm wrong there, but I'd be a little bit concerned. And a lot of this, Chris, is based on anecdotal stuff. And I I do try and get out and speak to as many business owners as I possibly can about the issues because uh, I often find that's a much better way of finding out than waiting for official statistics to tell you what the situation is. But anyway, uh, that's, I guess, my note of caution. Chris, I think we should probably wrap it there if that's okay. May um, I ask you one question yes, before we wrap it? Who yeah. will be Taoiseach at the end of the year? Um, Leo Varadkar. Okay, let's wrap it there, Jim. Wish all our listeners a, a, a very Merry Christmas and a very happy and prosperous New Year. And of course, to you as well, Jim. Yeah, li- likewise, Chris. And a, a, a couple of points before I wrap up. One is um, on the book front. Um, I read two books recently that I just like to mention. One is The Long Game by Aoife Moore. Uh, got slated by some of the critics. It's basically a look at Sinn Féin. Um, and it's, it's written by a journalist rather than historian, but I, I actually enjoyed it. Um, factually, people said that she got some of her facts wrong. I'm not intimately acquainted enough with Northern Ireland politics to determine that, but the overall story is a good one. I think for anybody understanding the question you asked me about Holby Taoiseach this time at the end of the year, um, the book is worth reading. The other one is by one of my favourite um finance and economics writers over the years, Gillian Tesh, who was with the Financial Times and is now in Cambridge University. Provost or Master of King's College, Cambridge. Yes. She she wrote a book um, I only picked up on it recently, Anthrovision. She looks at how anthropology can explain business and life. Fascinating. Uh, What are you going to be reading over Christmas, Chris? I'm going to finish that book by Angus Dayton, which essentially is a critique of economics. It's called Economics in America. That's what I'll be reading when I get a chance between now and New Year. And the other, (laughs) this is my final point. Final, final point. Uh, Looking back at the last 12 months, one of the um, most enjoyable things I did professionally was a joint post-budget seminar with you in person for um, a construction body called Octobuild. Um, I really enjoyed the, um, the the interaction we had sitting beside each other doing this podcast, basically. So let's hope we get a few more of those in the bag in 2024. Yeah. 
no harm in doing a commercial to end the year with, which is that uh, Jim and Chris are available for all sorts of different gigs, including live performances. A Merry Christmas to everybody. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.